Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 101 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan. Jo- oh, shit. Is that, is that Big Black Jacobin's music I hear? Somebody did an episode without me while I was cleaning out a ranch raccoon infestation. I'm here to set things right. Today, today, today this is my show. Today I'm running the show. Alright? Today we're going to be talking... We're good. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Today we're going to be talking about anthropology. And I don't want to hear a single motherfucker say anything otherwise. We're talking about David Graeber. We're talking about David Wengro. We're talking about prehistoric civilizations. And if not, then I have one thing to say. Shut up, bitch. and enemies uh you're listening to this machine kills i'm ed here with uh jathan and jeremy tied up uh to uh, the stake uh where we're gonna be uh streaming in votes from the audience on whether to burn them for uh running the episode without me um this week we are going to talk about the the late and great uh david graber along with David Wengro, uh, both anthropologists, later an archaeologist, and this amazing essay they wrote called um, How to Change the Course of Human History, uh, which is uh, a really uh, an amazing, a really amazing like revisionist account of um, the origins of social inequality um, that will serve to like dislodge and undermine a lot of the bullshit propaganda that we are fed that limits what we think is possible with technology, but also just with human politics. And, um, you know, think of this as like a primer to this asset, to the upcoming book uh, that they wrote uh, before Graver's death last year, uh, the book coming out next month, right? The dawn of everything. It's larger expansion. So we're just going to, you know, talk about this essay about the related work um, and, and vibe through, you know, what everything, you know, that is wrong about the story of how human civilization developed 
and what that means for what we can do in the future, right? I'm over here. The referee is holding the microphone up to my face while I'm, while I'm tied you will up. speak. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to flex these Marxist muscles, trying to get out of these binds. But no, no, the anarchists are running the show today. <laughs> At least he put a joint in my mouth and lit it before he walked away. With the honey. Don't forget, I put the honey on it, too. <laughs> extra special baby <laughs> oh man no i'm i'm psyched i'm psyched for for ed to be running the show today uh you, you and, and and for us to be you know talking through this essay this this is this stuff is interesting to me but i, I honestly don't think i'd engage with it in the in the same way uh, in the same seriousness if it weren't for ed like i love david graber's work don't get me wrong here debt the first 5000 years is a fucking amazing book uh david graber's essays on bullshit jobs his essay in the baffler right of flying cars and the decline of profit uh you know we've talked about that before i love david graber's book but you know, the, the stuff that looks more like that prehistoric, like, you know, what can we learn from the organization of prehistoric, you know, human societies and civilization? I feel like that stuff has been, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to stay away from it. I tend to stay away from it. And I think I stay away from it because of the reasons that David Graeber and David Wingrow grow through in this, uh, in this essay is because I always, it always just rubbed me the wrong way. Like it always just seemed like a, like a just so story of bullshit used to like justify uh, the status quo, used to justify a lot of uh, values and assumptions that are just asserted rather than argued for. Um, and like a lot of speculation, right? Like, you know, speculation about how prehistoric peoples, primitive peoples lived, uh, and then like projecting that onto the present day. Uh, like it always just, it always just seemed like a bunch of bullshit to me. And that's because it is. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, I, it, I think one thing that is, uh, one thing that spurred this collaboration between Van Gogh and Graeber, right, is the fact that the story that we have about the origins of social inequality, about the origins of, of human civilization, are like ideas and myths and narratives that are hundreds of years old and really have little bearing or resemblance to what specialists have learned over the past 30, 40, 50 years about prehistoric civilizations, about civilizations in antiqu antiquity. And as a result, that means that, you know, as they write in here, right, we've been shielded from, like, just a, a clear-eyed understanding. We've also been shielded from the political ramifications. We've also had our brains rotted by just nonsense, by non-specialists or by people who don't actually have any understanding about, you know, idea about what they're talking about, Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, Jared Diamond, like that whole spawn of uh, philosopher uh, eth uh, philosopher anthropologists that wax on about political science, right, as a result of these insights that they claim to have. For the past few hundred years, the story has largely been one where, you know, humans for, you know, humans have had the same brain as we have now for tens of thousands, more or less, for tens of thousands of years, right? And in that long fog of history, uh, they did nothing. They just hunted and gathered in small, tiny, egalitarian bands of their family or of people that they knew. Um, 
then they then then they discovered agriculture accidentally and they discovered tools and they discovered private property and then that created all these wonderful things like cities and social stratification and division of labor and and this is how civilization emerges and civilization emerged to give us wonderful things like organized culture right or like higher or like security right or material abundance in, in, for some, uh, and, and written literature, and so on, and, so, and science, and philosophy, you know, and all these other artifacts, these really wonderful things, but it also came with some bad things, you know, as uh, wars, taxes, bureaucracy, patriarchy, slavery, these are the examples they use, right? But the, And so you can't, you can't separate the good of civilization from the bad of it. And this is a story that has come to us from as far back as the Enlightenment, in its most current form, right, uh, that, you know, there is a, a tragic story in human history. Civilization requires inequality. It requires surplus to be given to a few people, to motivate, to organize, to extract, whatever rationale is assigned, and that to envision a world where there's not inequality is to imagine an impossible world where everyone knows each other and is is relegated to a small group of hunter gatherers, right? Mm. Um, and so it's it's similar to the to the move people make when responding to technological criticism with the accusation of luddite, right? If you believe that the current status affair of things or the state of affair of things, the current status quo of you know deep uh, deeply entrenched inequality of rigid hierarchies of, you know, mass amounts of suffering for the, you know, uh, enjoyment and abundance and, and greed of a few people. Um, if you don't believe in that story, then you're a utopian, right? Similarly, if you believe that like technology can be deployed a certain way and it doesn't have to hurt people, you're a Luddite. When the reality is there's not, there's not really any evidence when you actually engage with modern findings of archaeology, of anthropology, of any of these like in-field research disciplines to say that that's how human history looked like, right? And, you know, as they write, our species did not, in fact, spend most of its time in tiny bands. Agriculture did not mark an irreversible threshold in social evolution. The first cities were often robustly egalitarian, right? There have been findings of, you know, cities in, in Ukraine, uh, off the off the Black Sea, off the coast of the, of the Mediterranean, the Aegean. Like, interesting archaeological finds of cities that had you know, robust, large cities that have robust, you know, public infrastructure, um, minimal inequality from what we can tell, pretty complex cultures. But these and other examples are wiped away because the, there's a narrative that emerges here, right? The question of what is social inequality, right? And, and or what is the origin of social inequality, right? And people like, you know, Diamond and Fukuyama, they have an answer to this that begins with the idea you know, that Graeber and Wengrow point out, it begins with this idea that we had a primordial state of innocence that we fell from, right? And it, and it carries with it a bunch of assumptions, right? The first one they point out, that something called inequality exists. There's the second assumption that it is a problem. And the third one, that there was a time when it did not exist, right? In our political debates in the past, you know, 13 years since the crash of 2008, Inequality, social inequality specifically, is a huge problem, right? But the, the way that it is discussed is one that ends up feeling a bit apolitical, right? They write that, you know, pointing out this is, pointing this out, right? Pointing out that inequality seems to have spiraled out of control and that there's a consensus that has spiraled out of control and that 
Um, people seem to think most of the world's problems spin out of it. You know, pointing this out is seen as a challenge to global power structures. But compare this to the way similar issues might have been discussed a generation earlier. Unlike terms such as capital or class power, the word equality is practically designed to lead to half measures and compromise. One can imagine overthrowing capitalism or breaking the power of the state, but it's very difficult to imagine eliminating inequality. In fact, it's not obvious what doing so would even mean since people are not all the same and nobody would particularly want them to be, right? And so it ends up becoming, you know, the framing of technocrats, you know, the art, you know, um, friends of the show, technic technocrats, <laughs> um, a way of sterilizing or, you know, of, of neutering any sort of vision of social transformation, as they put it, right? And taking it off the table. You can, it, it you know, when growing Graeber right, it allows one to tinker with the numbers, argue about Gini coefficients and thresholds of dysfunction, readjust tax regimes or social welfare mechanisms, even shock the public with figures showing just how bad things have become. Can you imagine 0.1% of the world's population controls over 50% of the wealth, all without addressing any of the factors that people actually object to, such as unequal social arrangements? For instance, that some manage to turn their wealth into power over others, or that other people end up being told their needs are not important and their lives have no intrinsic worth, right? And, we're, and, and so because of these assumptions that are carried down by, uh, by people who are literate about what the literature really does say about the origins of, hum of you know, human civilization, because of the political assumptions that are baked in, we end up being told like that all of the suffering in the world, all of the misery, all of the social problems are inevitable consequences of large, complex, urban, technologically sophisticated societies, right? And that if you want to get rid of the problems, you have to somehow get rid of most of the population of the planet and return back to this egalitarian band of family hunter-gatherers. Otherwise, all you can do is, quote, adjust the size of the boot that will be stomping on our faces forever and perhaps to wrangle a bit more wiggle room in which some of us can at least temporarily duck out of the room. Yeah, I, I like this. I love this way of framing the, the, the problem right at the beginning of essentially the way we talk about inequality, right, right? And the way that this concept of inequality, you know, as they say, right, like, uh, particularly since the, the, the 2008 financial crash has been marshaled as, uh, you know, the center of political debate, but in that way, uh, has, has become completely like denuded of any of its like actual historical context or political meaning. I think it, I think we should think about this, um, but I think we should think about this uh, in a broader sense uh, as well as a kind of shot, ac uh, shot across the bow of the DEI uh, body of thinking, right? In terms of, you know, so DEI, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, you know, this very kind of like corporatized bundle of, of ways of understanding social problems that comes with these like very neoliberalized uh, solutions for how to address those problems. Um, and, you know, it's very insidious, right? I mean, we've talked in the past about you know, the problem of inclusion, right? The problem in which the, the way inclusion has been understood, the way it's been framed, the solutions that have been marshaled for it, right? Here thinking about, again, the piece by Anna Lauren Hoffman that we've talked about before and we reference all the time, uh, just really, you know, 
taking the wind out of the sails from that kind of uh, inclusion discourse in the tech sector in particular. You know, we've talked about the problems of diversity, right? This like very corporatized diversity, but we haven't really hit on that, that, that question of like equity and fairness or the flip side, right? Inequality and unfairness. And I love this essay because it, it kind of, it rounds us out. It rounds out this larger, broader critique that we've been building, you know, and building on uh, other people's work on this over over a while now of TMK's run of looking at the the insufficiencies and inadequacies of a DEI uh, style of thinking. There are critiques to be making about it if you really want the outcomes that they claim to, but also like the reality of it is that it perpetuates a very certain conception of things, a status quo, right? It leaves some things unsaid, it leaves some things uncriticized, and it leaves certain assumptions in place that up that you know hold up the very system you're supposed you should be criticizing, right? The very the, the source, the wellspring of the discrimination, right? Of the exclusion, the homogenous, you know, groups of workers or managers or whatever you know criteria you're examining. And similarly, right? You know, the way in which inequality is conceived may seem like a small question, but within it are a lot of what well, you're, you're asking, how should we should organize society? How should we distribute resources? How should we organize people who do or don't have enough resources? And what sort of political processes should bring in the people and who should be brought in and why they should be brought in? I mean, this sits at the fulcrum, I think, of a lot of questions about what it should mean, what political life should look like, right? And and it is very important. If it turns out that human inequality is not inevitable, right, then we should be looking at other types of structures that accept that. And we should also be disputing and questioning and 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 dispute and you know debunking any narratives that try to say it is for what reason. And that doesn't just mean like inequality in the sense of like we have to have, for example, like hierarchical systems that like extract, you know, surplus value, people's labor, whatnot. But like inequality in any dominion, right? Do we need to? Do we have to have relations where there's dominance or coercion in any way, shape, or form? Do we have to have relations in which you have to have some large centralized apparatus? Do we have to have relations in which you have to have like you know a top-down structure? Like these are all and. And, and at what size do they become useful or useless, right? These are all pretty important questions. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, they take aim, right, at this, 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 uh, this theory, right? As they say, you know, abandoning the story of a fall from primordial innocence does not mean abandoning dreams of human emancipation. That is, of a society where no one can turn their rights and property into a means of enslaving others and where no one can be told their lives and needs don't matter. To the contrary, human history becomes a far more interesting place, containing many more hopeful moments than we've been led to imagine once we learn to throw off our conceptual shackles and perceive what's really there. Hmm. And so I think one of the first places, you know, to think is, again, revisiting, right, that sort of story. I like the way that Graeber and Wengrow write the story, so I'll quote it in full. It's a long section. Um but essentially, uh, starts like this. As the curtain goes up on human history, say roughly 200,000 years ago, with the appearance of an anatomically modern Homo sapiens, we find our species living in small and mobile bands ranging from 20 to 40 individuals. 
They seek out optimal hunting and foraging territories, following herds, gathering nuts and berries. If resources become scarce or social tensions arise, they respond by moving on and going someplace else. Life for these early humans, we can think of it as humanity's childhood, is full of dangers, but also possibilities. Material possessions are few, but the world is an unspoiled and inviting place. Most work only a few hours a day, and the small size of social groups allows them to maintain a kind of easygoing camaraderie without formal structures of domination. Rousseau, writing in the 18th century, referred to this as the state of nature. But nowadays it is presumed to have encompassed most of our species' actual history. It is also assumed to be the only era in which humans managed to live in genuine societies of equals, without classes, castes, hereditary leaders, or centralized government. Alas, this happy state of affairs eventually had to end. Our conventional version of world history places this moment around 10,000 years ago, at the close of the last ice age. At this point, we find our imaginary human actors scattered across the world's continents, beginning to farm their own crops and raise their own herds. Whatever the local reasons, they are debated, the effects are momentous and basically the same everywhere. Territorial attachments and private ownership of property become imported in ways previously unknown, and with them, sporadic feuds and war. Farming grants a surplus of food, which allows some to accumulate wealth and influence beyond their immediate kin group. Others use their freedom from the food quest to develop new skills, like the invention of more sophisticated weapons, tools, vehicles, and fortifications, and the pursuit of politics or organized religion. In consequence, these Neolithic farmers quickly get the message of their hunter-gatherer neighbors, get the measure of their hunter-gatherer neighbors, and set about eliminating or absorbing them into a new and superior, albeit less equal, way of life. To make matters more difficult still, or so the story goes, farming ensures a global rise in population levels. As people move into ever larger concentrations, our unwitting ancestors take another irreversible step into inequality, and around 6,000 years ago, cities appear, and our fate is sealed. With cities come the need for centralized government. New classes of bureaucrats, priests, and warrior politicians install themselves in permanent office to keep order and ensure the smooth flow of supplies and public services. Women, having once enjoyed prominent roles in human affairs, are sequestered or imprisoned in harems. War captives are reduced to slaves. Full-blown inequality has arrived and there's no getting rid of it. Still, the storytellers always assure us not everything about the rise of urban civilization is bad. Writing is invented, at first to keep state accounts, but this allows terrific advances to take place in science, technology, and the arts. At the price of innocence, we become our modern selves and can now merely gaze with pity and jealousy at those few traditional or primitive societies that somehow missed the boat. And this is the this is the thought, this is the frame of mind that I think really does underwrite every single fucking theory of how humans work. Right? Like mm-hmm. every single modern political theory, popular conception of social dynamics, of groups, of anything larger than a family unit, of the rationale for most, if not all, policy outcomes in one way or another, once you get to some abstraction enough level, they all come down to this story. And the premise of this essay is we'll dive in is that the story's bullshit and that there's actual no real there's no real scientific evidence behind it um Mm. and there's no real like archaeological evidence that supports it as well yeah what what this story is is a story about that seeks to uh 
tell us what human nature is, right? Like that's, that's really what this story is, right? It's a story about, uh, you know, social relationships and social organization, uh, as a way of then telling us, and this is our human nature and, and our human nature, uh, is, is a prison that we cannot escape from, right? That we are doomed, um, to simply repeat it, that we are doomed to uh, uh, only organize in certain ways that things like inequality are inevitable um, be, uh, without going back to, you know, this prehistory time period of, of hunters, gatherers, and nomadic tribes. Um, this is human nature. And I think this is also why, you know, there, there's a flip side to this, right? There, uh, the, the story you just laid out, right? And, you know, through the words of, of, of Graeber and Wingrow of this kind of story of this fall from primordial innocence uh, and the rise of human civilization, you know, it, it's a, as they talk about, it's a really biblical story. It's, it, it kind of mirrors the story of us, you know, leaving the Garden of Eden, right? Taking mm -hmm. a bite of the apple of knowledge um, and being cast out into the world. Um, and we can never return to the Garden of Eden, right? That's always the, the sometimes the subtext, sometimes explicitly said uh, that we can never return to that. And you know what 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 you lay out here is is also a kind of flip side of like a a kind of version of a of a, like a primitive capitalism right baked into the story is the idea that what we understand as capitalism which is you know a very recent uh you know uh you know political economic regime right a very recent way of organizing society um but baked into these stories that are told by these, uh, you know, these big idea bozos, uh, you know, mm -hmm. think about, uh, you know, go back to our S our episode from a long time ago with Riley Quinn from trash future on the theory of the thought leader. Right. And a lot of those people that we talked about with Riley are going to reappear here as well. The people like Jared diamond, people like Francis Fukuyama, right. These people who purport to have a big idea about human nature, um, and they tell a very neat story about human nature, but wrapped up in that is this uh, story that that essentially, you know, modern capitalism um, is actually part of human nature, and it's been present for ten thousand years, right? And we can't escape it. Uh, and and that is why human nature, you know, that is why I'm uh, I'm also always have been turned off by these stories of human nature is because they cast human nature as a prison, as a confinement um, that we like, you know, existentially cannot escape from. And I, re I remember uh, when I was uh, doing my undergrad, I did a minor in political science. So I took a bunch of political science courses in, in, in college. And I remember uh, in multiple political science courses, we would read books um, about like, like the politics of primates, right? Like those kinds of books, right? That, that are like, here I'm going to quote from um, Francis Fukuyama's book, The Origin of Political Order from Pre-Human Times to the French Revolution. And in this, Fukuyama says, uh, in its early stages, human political organization is similar to the band level society observed in higher primates like chimpanzees. Uh, this may be regarded as a default form of social organization. You know, he goes on to say, like chimp bands, hunter-gatherers inhabit a territorial range that they guard and occasionally fight over. Uh, you know, and, and he goes on, right? I always found that to be a very weird thing to 
be like, oh, to understand human nature, we have to study, you know, primates and we have to understand and we have to study chimpanzees um, because what are humans but chimpanzees with big brains, right? Like that's essentially the, the argument here. It always rubbed me the wrong way as a kind of disanalogy, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have myself the, the evidence or the analysis to say like, why? Why is this rubbing me the wrong way? Um, and Wingro and Graeber go through, and we'll go through as we talk through their essay, that I was right. <laughs> I was right to be rubbed the wrong way, the, the wrong way by this because it's a story based in fairy tale, not a story based in uh, actual empirical uh, science and research, and not a story that links up to uh, the actual the actual findings of how people um, organize themselves, you know, how they didn't just go from uh, hunter-gatherers and then boom, there was an agricultural revolution, like we just fell off a cliff one day and woke up in a, like a version of primitive capitalism. Like they go through and explain that the, that the, these historical transitions and relationships, the, these dialectical processes, you know, uh, again, Big ups to the science, the immortal science of historical materialism. <laughs> um, as they go through, right, is that that's not the case at all. There wasn't this like, you know, revolutionary moment of like you wake up one day and suddenly you've gone from primitive communism to primitive capitalism. listening keep that in your mind keep in your mind story one band level societies right the idea that you an idea championed by fukuyama but also by diamond that you can really only have social equality and egalitarianism in small bands of dozen of maybe two or three dozen individuals where they all know each other but they also only hunt and gather in a very narrow narrow range where they have no material possessions where they have little to no depth in their culture or their social interactions right keep that to one side that's one part of this story this idea that band level societies were how humans lived for tens of thousands of years until the advent of cities really right or into, of territorial attachment and private property you also have a modifi modification of this that's offered by rousseau later right and and rousseau i think articulates it a little bit more clearly than like fukuyama and company that agriculture is what ends it right i mean in the in the section that you know that jathan quoted um, Fukuyama points that uh, Rousseau did say this, right? But for you know, for this narrative, the idea is that agriculture takes those bands, turns them into tribes, right? It takes food surplus and it and then hoards it. It leads to population growth, but then it also leads to chiefdoms, to stratification, right? To the development of these chiefs that declare themselves kings, that declare themselves emperors, right? That all of this is wrapped up in the package of large, complex, large-scale complex organizations like states, right? And that gets further locked in because the surplus gets passed off. The power gets shared or, you know, uh, the, the spoils gets shared, right? 
by uh, by supporting patrons and, and flunkies and relatives, right? Making status hierarchical, making uh, hereditary, making hierarchies rigid and permanent, right? That they reinforce relations uh, with slavery, right? With warmongering, with uh, harems of slave girls, with tearing out rivals' hearts with obsidian knives, right? You know, there's uh, there's this idea that all of this, whether it's, all of this is still present today. We have militaries, we have bureaucrats, we have presidents, no matter what you need, you can only have equality if everybody knows each other and it's small, but the minute you get past a certain size, it's too late, right? Putting aside the fact that Fukuyama and Diamond, as the pair point out, are not really trained in the relevant disciplines. Fukuyama is a political scientist. Diamond has a PhD in the physiology of the cow bladder. They have pretty dense endnote for their books, and so that passes off as uh, relevance or expertise in the, in the field when marketing these books to the mass market um, or the mass public. There's also the thing uh, to step back and say, oh, well, this is also something that happens in anthropology, right, in, in, in an ethnography and in archaeology. And that brings us to, you know, sort of like the second thing to keep in mind, which is, okay, what, are the, what is the story that people who should be familiar with the research saying? You know, how deep does this this image of human nature and human political uh, development stretch, right? And as they point out, right, they take a prominent book. It's called In the Creation of Inequality, How Our Prehistoric Ancestors Set the Stage for Monarchy, Slavery, and Empire by these two uh, ethnographers and anthropologists, like well-known scholars, Ken Flannery and Joy Marcus, right? They say, you know, our ice age forebears were not entirely unfamiliar with institutions of hierarchy and servitude, but insist they experience these mainly in dealings with the supernatural, ancestral spirits and the like. The invention of farming, they propose, led to the emergence of demographically extended clans or descent groups, and as it did so, access to spirits and the dead became a route to earthly power. How exactly is not made clear. According to Flannery and Marcus, the next major step on the road to inequality came when certain clansmen of unusual talent or renown, expert healers, warriors, or other overachievers, were granted the right to transmit status to their descendants, regardless of the latter's talents or abilities. That pretty much sowed the seeds and meant from then on it was just a matter of time before the arrival of cities, monarchy, slavery, and empire. Uh, one, one thing to take into consideration with the book, right? Is that, you know, they didn't really, is that, it's that there's only archaeological evidence for the birth of the states and the empires, right? As one grown Graeber write, all the really key moments in their account of the creation of inequality rely instead on relatively recent descriptions of small-scale foragers, herders, cultivators, like the Hasta, the East African Rift, or the Napikawara, the um, Amazonian rainforest. And so accounts of traditional societies are treated as if they were windows into the Paleolithic or Neolithic past, but the problem is that they are nothing of the kind. The Hazda, the Napakawara, are not living fossils. They have been in contact with agrarian states and empires, raiders and traders, for millennia, and the social institutions were decisively shaped through attempts to engage with or avoid them. So only archaeology can tell us what, if anything, they have in common with the prehistoric societies, right? So, so you know, it, it boils down to we see that there's evidence for a certain part of it, but again, because they're beginning with this question of origin of social inequality 
and the presumption that there's a, there's a primordial innocence, they're ignoring that there's not actually any archaeological evidence to back up their claim. And they're assuming that because there was a primordial innocence, that any society that resembles that today will also necessarily have whatever features they need to intuit about what it was like before and as the advent of civilization arrived, right? Yeah, and, and this idea of of, of treating these, uh, you know, the, these present day, you know, nomadic tribes and herders and, and foragers as living fossils is is an, is an idea that has really been perpetuated and poisoned our own understanding of these things, right? Again, it, it, it leads to a, a version of a fetishism, right? They, you know, Jared Diamond does this as well with, uh, with, uh, uh, groups in like Papua New Guinea, right? Uh, you know, all of these kind of, uh, uh, big thinkers about human nature and the origins of human civilization, right? They kind of pinpoint their, their chosen, uh, you know, nomadic tribe that they want to treat as living fossils, um, as if they've been cast in amber, right? Never, uh, never interacting with the larger world around them, uh, and never being shaped by it. Uh, and using that as a way to then tell us what human nature is, right? Like they somehow still live in the state of nature. They somehow did not take a bite from the, uh, the apple of knowledge, right? Like they are still in this, uh, uh, garden of Eden. So if, if we can just, st if we can sit on the outside of it and press our face against the glass, like they live in some kind of zoo, then we can understand human nature, right? It's the same way that a lot of these, like, you know, primate political scientists, uh, want to do with chimpanzees, right? I think in their mind, these two, these two groups, right? chimpanzees and these like, uh, you know, uh, Amazonian tribes are essentially the same thing, right? In their yeah. mind, they, they treat them as essentially the same exact thing as they, they've not evolved at all, right? They've, they've been static for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and, and boy, isn't it, isn't it so, uh, convenient that, that we as, as the, the world zookeepers can go around and observe these animals in their natural habitat? Yeah. I think that's a very key point because the, this, this idea that, this idea also low key implies that human beings were not thinking, not creative not inventive, did none of the things that we know they do today, taken from today's societies, right? They were doing none of these things for tens of thousands of years, which is also should be a red flag, and, and this we'll talk about a bit later, but this 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 idea of of indigenous groups, of isolated societies, as they're human in that they are biologically human, but they are not considered really human because they're not modern. Right. Mm -hmm. Because of that, then those, the weird analogies to animals are made as if a chimpanzee is similar to a human adult. Right. In any, in any way, shape or form. But then and, and you should you should pay close attention to when the arguments are relying on like evolutionary overlaps or similarities or evolutionary psychology as if like humans and chimps, honestly, are just like are 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 Cartesian automatons, right? That really mm. act on nothing other than external forces with those being modern humans and genetics, right? Um, <laughs> there's also, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I want to jump in and say, I think that that, that is a really crucial point here. And, and one that is, uh, I think, extremely telling that so many of these stories tend to be the fairy tales of evolutionary psychologists. Uh, and, the, and, you know, these disciplines that, that, 
that specialize in these really absurd analogies and just so stories uh, in order to uh, explain, you know, modern human behavior um, through some, you know, very bizarre assumptions. Uh, as as um, Wingrow and Graeber put it, right, these are just prejudices stated as facts, right? And like, that's what a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of this is the playground for these like evolutionary psychologists or evolutionary anthropologists who, you know, want to tell fairy tales, but uh, act as if they're facts. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, and, and that brings us to like, okay, the last sort of node in this, what do modern thinkers say is the story of prehistory, right? So he focuses on Ian Morris's foragers, farmers, and fossil fields, how human values evolve, right? And so Morris is doing something very different, right? Morris is, as they write, pursuing a slightly different intellectual project to bring the findings of archaeology, ancient history, and anthropology into, the, into dialogue with the work of economists such as Thomas Piketty on the causes of inequality in the modern world, or Sir Tony Atkinson's more policy-oriented inequality, where it can be done. The deep time of history, Morris informs us, has something important to tell us about such questions, but only if we first establish a uniform measure of inequality applicable across its entire span. And so he, you know, intuits and invents values of Ice Age hunter-gatherers and Neolithic farmers into uh, terms that modern-day economists would understand. And then he uses those to create Gini coefficients, right, and create what should be some formalized, standardized inequality rate, right? And so instead of the spiritual inequalities that the two anthropological scholars, Flannery and Marcus, pointed out, Marcus gives us a materialist analysis, right? Um, not, maybe not a dialectical materialist, but a materialist one, right? Where he's saying human history has big has is three big Fs, and these big Fs are you know foraging, farming, and fossil fuels. Also, human civilization depends on human history depends on how do you create heat, right? All societies have optimal levels of social inequality within how they devise a way to heat. A built-in spirit level, you know, and this uh, this is a term that goes um, back to other scholars, to Piquet and Wilkinson, uh, pointed out earlier, is is how we should understand or start to think about this, right? And so, in a in a, in a piece for the New York Times, Morris, I mean, frankly, kind of pulls numbers out of out of his ass, right? <laughs> I mean, like, if we're being real about this, um, and he says, "Look, I created, I created." It's a ridiculous thing that you can say. I create I quantified primordial incomes in US dollars fixed in 1990 currency values. So he assumes he, he makes the band level assumption, right? And he says, look, they didn't consume that much. They actually lived on a dollar a day, right? And so the the Gini coefficient was about 0.25. You know, some of the lowest rates that we can imagine, because there's no surplus, there's no capital, there's no hoarding or accumulation. Agrarian societies, and for Morris, this includes everything from the 9,000-year-old Neolithic village of Kataholyuk to Kublai Khan's China, or the France of Louis XIV, right? They're all more populous and better off, with an average consumption of $1.50 to $2.20 per day per person, and a propensity, quote, to accumulate surpluses of wealth, and that most people worked harder, 
they were in inferior conditions. And so farming societies tended towards much higher levels of inequality. And that fossil fuel societies, you know, should really have changed everything by freeing us from the, from the drudgery of work and bringing us to reasonable Gini coefficients, right? You know, and instead, you know, of bringing us to a Gini coefficient of 0.25, of a really low level of inequality, it goes high. It goes higher and higher and higher. And more is, is confused by this, right? Why is it that wealth is getting sucked up into the hands of the tiny global elite? And in one quote, he writes, if the twists and turns of economic history over the last 15,000 years are in popular will or any guide, the right level of post-tax income inequality seems to lie between 0.25 and 0.35. And that of wealth inequality between 0.705 and 0.8, I mean 0.7 and 0.8. Many countries are now at or above the upper bounds of these ranges, which suggests that Mr. Piketty is right indeed to foresee trouble, right? You know, I mean, come all of, all of that. Let's, let's, there's a lot there, and we don't have the time and the space. To, <laughs> I mean, we, we can. There's a, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of bullshit there. But the one thing that we should maybe we'll, we'll look at, as you know, as they did in their essay, is the is that focus on the income at one point, one dollar uh, a day, right? You might ask yourself, or you might have been asking yourself, you know, astute listener, what orifice did he pull that number out of? You know, where, where is it coming from, <laughs> right? Does it, as it, and this is a question they raised, does it have something to do with caloric value of the daily food intake? But if we're also comparing it to daily incomes today, we have to consider all the other things that the, you know, foragers got for free. But we ourselves would expect to pay for. They got free security. They got they got free conflict resolution, right? They got free education. They got free care of the elderly, free medicine, right? And then they had entertainment and they had music and they had storytelling and they had public service or they had, you know, religious services, right? And then there's food, right? They had 100% organic free range produce with the purest natural spring water, right? So most of our income today goes towards rents and mortgages. You know, as they write, as they write, consider the camping fees for prime Paleolithic locations along the Dordogne or the Verazie. Not to mention the high-end evening classes, the naturalistic rock painting, and ivory carving, and all those fur coats. Surely, all this would mu must cost wildly in excess of a dollar ten a day, even in $90. It's not for nothing that Marshall Salins or Salins referred to the foragers as the original affluent society. Such a life today would not come cheap. And, you know, as they pointed out, this is a little silly, but, like, that's, that's the point, right? That argument, the idea that you can, uh, once you start playing that game of, like, oh, they only made a dollar a day, you're just saying nonsense, right? You're just saying nonsense. Because what the fuck are you talking about? Are we, if we really want to do it, let's pretend. And let's just say they were earning, they were making, uh, $200,000 a year, right? <laughs> Fur coat, mink coats, right? Uh, pure water, no, no lead, right? No lead, no fluoride, right? Um, stargazing, <laughs> the beautifulest stars, no light pollution, right? They didn't have sunsets because they didn't have industrial pollution, but they had stargazing, right? They had yoga, they had meditation, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> they lived the life of a bohemian, Um but of course, to, to, if we do that, it would just sound like idiots, right? Which should raise the point. Why the fuck are you reducing human history to guinea coefficients? 
because they're technocrats, right? And because they're not actually asked or interested in answering the question, where does social inequality come from? They're like lost in this framework, this mythology that they're pursuing, right? I don't know if you guys remember, there were these commercials that used to play all the time uh, back in the 80s, uh, throughout the 80s and probably through most of the 90s. But there was a, a actress by the name of Sally Struthers and she used to go on and do these little like for a dollar and 14 cents a day you can feed a family in Africa and Mm -hmm. I'm thinking maybe he pulled the numbers from those because he's you know probably looking at countries in Africa that went through famine and they're like well these people aren't as evolved as we are so therefore if they live on a dollar 14 a day that's what hunter gatherers lived off of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the, it, it, it might, it's as good a place as any to pull out a bullshit number like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it frees you from doing any real policy proposal or solution because it's like, okay, if everyone would, if you can do, if you look at the Fukuyama and Diamond explanation, the solution is it's baked in and you have to do is a bunch of smart technocratic fixes, right? If you look at the Flannery and Marcus suggestion, uh, you what, one thing they literally say, when they say, how, we wondered, could society be made more egalitarian, after briefly consulting his old friend Jack Daniels, McNesh replied, put hunters and gatherers in charge. Okay, thanks for the suggestion. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Useless. (laughs) Um, And then there's Morris with the fucking Gini coefficients and primordial income and equality rates of blah, blah, blah. You know, his solution leads you to to an even grimmer solution, which is like, okay, Either you do a robust taxation regime, sure, or as uh, as another guy puts it, you um, you have to just accept the existence of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates because if you don't, then uh, you know the only things that ever get rid of wealth and and elites are wars and plagues and 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 mass conscriptions and and famines and and, and whole scale death and you don't want that so you just have to have the billionaires. <laughs> it's nonsense <laughs> you know yeah it's muddle-headed nonsense the the stuff starts getting really silly really quick which i think is is exactly what you're pointing out here and what i think uh uh graber and wingrow are so expert at really like following these arguments that have been largely accepted as fact uh, you know, as, as these kind of like popular, uh, popular conceptions of, of human nature, of human civilization, of what, what the past was like and therefore what the present must be like and the, the constraints of the future, right? Like all of this shit, when you, when you start following the logic, uh, to its lo- to its conclusions, it starts sounding extremely silly, um, and I, and I, and and there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason why it's it's silly for uh, for someone like you know Ian Morris, as they're pointing out, right, to be able to uh, have you know space in the New York Times, the gray lady herself, to explain this uh, intensely technocratic economic analysis of how uh, the Neolithic farmers lived and blah, blah, blah. And, 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 you know, while also not taking into account all of the other things that these, you know, economists 
do actually want to put numbers to, right? Like we need, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, nature is just an environmental service, right? But, 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 but not in my calculations uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking about how primitive societies lived, right? That's only a, a modern innovation uh, with, with modern financial institutions that we can start putting numbers, uh, that we can turn nature into an asset class, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it, it starts getting really silly really, really quick. You know, Wingrow and Graeber uh, do a, uh, an excellent job here in this kind of first half of their essay, really, you know, uh, laying out what the what mainstream accepted thought and wisdom is on this stuff, um, and 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 showing us how silly it is, and showing how this simp this there's no way that this can be the case, right? There's no way that this can be the case uh, if we look at the archaeological record, which which we'll get into. They they actually do uh, and find you know surprise surprise a very different story. Um, but but like even in the abstract, there's no way that that can be the case, right? It it it, it requires abstracting away so much stuff in order to reach those really silly dumb conclusions about how people about about how people lived, um, about what human nature is. Okay, so we identify all of these things with Rousseau and his uh, discourse on the origin and foundation of inequality among mankind. But as Wengrow and Graeber point out, uh, Rousseau uh, never said that the state of nature was real, right? He writes, the researches in which we may engage on this occasion are not to be taken for historical truths, but merely as hypothetical and conditional reasonings to fill fitter to illustrate the nature of things and to show their true origin. Right? It was it was not it was not supposed to be a key integral part of everyone's theory of political development. Right? It was not supposed to, as they put it, be an equivalent to the phase of savagery, which opens up the evolutionary schemes of the Scottish philosophers, such as Adam Smith, Ferguson, Miller, or the later Lewis Henry Morgan. Right? All these people are supposed to be concerned with. They're trying to. They're trying to suss out how human beings develop social complexity, right? And and their morality, their moral cultures, right? And argue in one way or another that certain historical developments accompanied them, right? Foraging, right? Hunting and gathering, uh, you know, pastoralism, right? Agriculture, and then industrial production, right? Rousseau uh, just came up with a story um, that he offered as a way to explain human politics, um, but in reality ends up being used to limit our conception of human politics, right? Rousseau wrote, all ran headlong for their chains and the belief that they were securing their liberty. For although they had enough reason to see the advantages of political institutions, they did not have enough experience to foresee the dangers, right? His state of nature is just an attempt to illustrate this, to, to give a sort of story to, a meta, to, a, to his understanding of a paradox of hum, human politics, which is that there's freedom or desire for freedom, and that yet this desire of freedom has not yielded equality, right? Mm. Um, so what's going on here? What's the question, right? Uh, a lot, you know, there's this there's scholar that they lean on, uh, Judith Scholar, uh, who's a Harvard political theorist, um, who, who, was inter who interprets and, you know, reasons that Rousseau was trying to explain that this tension um, was, was at the core of Rousseau's writings, right? This tension between possibility and probability. 
possibility of emancipation, the likelihood that we'll do it. This, you know, makes sense, but also must consider that, like, at the same time, Rousseau's framings, his arguments ended up being used by all sides, you know, whether it's left or right, in the early days or in the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution, to justify whatever political project that they ended up doing, whether it ended up being a reactionary, restrictive, authoritarian, or liberatorian, and emancipatory project. And, you know, uh, to quote another section from them, all this might seem a bit more ironic since after the French Revolution, many conservative critics held Rousseau personally responsible for the guillotine. What brought the terror, they insisted, was precisely his naive faith in the innate goodness of humanity and his belief that a more equal social order could simply be imagined by intellectuals and then imposed by the general will. But very few of those past figures, now pilloried as romantics and utopians, were really so naive. Like Karl Marx, for instance, held that what makes us human is our power of imaginative reaction. Unlike these, we imagine the houses we'd like to live in, and only then set about constructing them. But he also believed that one couldn't just proceed in the same way with society and try to impose an architect's model. To do so would be to commit the utopians, the sin of utopian socialism, for which he had nothing but contempt. Instead, revolutionaries had to get a sense of larger structural forces that shaped the course of world history and take advantage of underlying contradictions. For instance, the fact that individual factory owners need to stiff their workers to compete, but if all are too successful in doing so, no one will be able to afford what the factories produce. And yet, ultimately, a lot of the analysis, the critics, fall back eventually and believe in diminutive and romantic versions of this story, which they then accuse the critics of doing, or which they interpret or misinterpret people like Rousseau of, of proposing, right? When uh, when Marx, is, or, you know, in this retelling of Marx's theory, right, talking about, you know, the, the power of religious, or scripture specifically, uh, talking about the realities of, of human history and how, in one way or another, the narratives compress or fall back to some sort of religious narrative of a fall and a redemption, right? That then they all... You know, his argument is that Marxist thought or Marxist political parties responded with their own sort of version of this, fusing Rousseau's state of nature and then the idea, the Scottish idea, the Scottish philosophers we talked about, of developmental stages to create a sense of world history that began with the primitive communism that we talked about at the top, the, the advent of, pri of private property, right? But that's something that we could overcome and eventually, you know, upend. But... All of that, they argue, is that misses the point, which is that there are modern-day examples, right, and past examples, right, of societies and revolutionary moment, moments and, like, experiments in where there is no trade-off um, and, no, and no, like, inherent tendency to move towards inequality, no trade-off between freedom and imagination and liberation and autonomy, and that human history does not follow what the Bible or, you know, most of the religious texts we have dictates, which is we had that original Garden of Eden or our little blissful state of nature, and then we fucked up, and now we're stuck here until we are redeemed. <laughs> That's right, until kingdom come. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is a kind of, uh, it, you know, to push that even further, you know, baked into these kind of grand sweeping narratives of human history and, and development, uh, you know, 
it's a I think there's there's no accident here that right Fukuyama first made his bones declaring the end of history right because like baked in uh, to these grand uh, sweeping narratives is that human history can only change and human nature can only be changed when the rapture comes right that 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 is the only thing that will allow us to escape the prison, prison that we've that made for ourselves here. here, here, here. Now I think it's time. Let's let's get into uh, Wingrow and Graeber's um, actual empirical arguments here, right? They've they've spent a, a lot of necessary time debunking and sweeping aside uh, these these you know speculative theorists and fairy tales of human nature uh, and the and and human society. Now, now is the time for us to bring down that hammer of historical materialism and actually ask ourselves, what does the archaeological record uh, uh, tell us? What does, you know, the last few decades of, of uh, you know, uh, discoveries and findings and new information um, tell us about how uh, people and these early societies actually lived and organized themselves around the world, right? Um, and, and here, I think, is where their argument starts getting really, you know, really clear and really powerful for that, you know, going to the, the very title uh, of the, the essay, that, that question of how do we change the course of human history? Uh, and, and, you know, what does, what does the, the, the organization of past societies tell us as what is actually what's possible? Because again, I think, you know, it's worth reiterating over and over that so many of these stories, so many of these fairy tales are ways of justifying the status quo or even not just or even if they don't justify right even if they say damn this sucks it's still a way of 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 uh, etching it into stone to saying damn this sucks and there's nothing we can do about it right and there's nothing anybody has ever done about it because this is this is the prison that we've condemned ourselves to that is i think that is ultimately like if we step back and think about David Graeber's work, I'm less familiar with David Wingrow's work outside of his collaborations with David Graeber. You know, thinking about how Graeber marshals history to uh, uh, to upend these th these truths that we hold sacred, right? These quote unquote truths that we hold as immutable facts of human society. You know, thinking about like the way he does that with uh, with debt. You know, the first five thousand years, his book on this history of of debt uh, in human societies around the world to to show us, you know, that that what we think of as these immutable facts and relations of things like debt, of capitalism, of private property, of the state are, are really quite new innovations and constantly changing. They are constantly being revolutionized in terms of how something like debt is understood, how it's implemented, uh, it's, and the, the larger kind of context around that. And I think that this is, and, and this is what Graeber and Wingrow are doing 
very, very well in this essay. And what, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to their, their book that's coming out uh, next month, I believe. Um, the Dawn of Everything is the title of it. But, you know, it, it, it kind of this expanded version of this essay where they are, you know, really laying out that, you know, to, 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 to quote, uh, you know, a, a series on the Antifada, history is a weapon, right? And I, I like that, right? They kind of hone this understanding of real historical materialist analysis, not just to say, hey, isn't this an interesting set of facts, right? Hey, isn't this like, you know, like uh, some trivial pursuit cards, you know? And I'm going to give uh -huh. you a bunch of, uh, uh, of, of facts and dates and people and events, and, you know, it's up to you to make a meaning out of it. Say, no, no, no. Uh, by having a true understanding of the, the historical materialist conditions and developments, that is necessary for understanding both that question of what's possible and what's probable. Yeah, you know, and, and this is why there's a lot of energy put into, as they say at the top, prioritizing certain political imaginations over others, right? And so... You know, when we get to them sort of like asking, okay, you know, what has anthropology and archaeology actually told us, right? And so the first thing is that the wrong question is what is the origin of social inequality, right? You know, as I say, true, before the beginnings of what's called the Upper Paleolithic, we really have no idea what most human social life was like, but uh, much of our evidence comprises scattered fragments of worked stone, bone, and a few other durable materials. Different hominin species coexisted. It's not clear if any ethnographic analogy might apply. Things only become uh, begin to come into any kind of focus in the Upper Paleolithic itself, which begins about, about 45,000 years ago, right? And that covers the peak, you know, extension of the Ice Age and, and the glaciers, right? Now, about 20 years ago, known as the last glacial maximum, right? After then becomes the retreat of the ice sheets. This is at least the Holocene, the human era, the human epoch, uh, the conditions ripe for the development of the ascension of Homo sapiens, who at the time had already colonized and, and settled in most of the old world and entered the new world, reaching the southern shores of the Americas around 15,000 years ago, right? So what do we know about that human history, that period of human history? So what we know, you know, as I say, much of the earliest substantial evidence for social organization in the Paleolithic comes from Europe, right, where we developed alongside Homo Neanderthalus, right? So alongside the Neanderthals before they went extinct 40,000 BC, right? And so we know that there, that over there in the habitable parts when the Ice Age was retreating, uh, that Europe looked more like the Serengeti Park in Tanzania than what it looks like today. So south of the ice sheets, between the tundra and between the forested shorelines of the Mediterranean, the continent was divided into game-rich valleys and steep, seasonally traversed by migrating herds of deer, bison, woolly mammoth. And so prehistorians have pointed out for some decades, to little apparent effect, that the human groups inhabiting these environments had nothing in common with those blissfully simple egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers still routinely imagined to be our remote ancestors. To begin with, there's the undisputed existence of rich burials, extending back in time to the depths of the new ice age. Some of these, such as the 25,000-year-old graves from Sungir, east of Moscow, have been known for many decades and are justly famous. 
Felipe Fernandez Ernesto, who reviewed the creation of inequality for the Wall Street Journal, expresses his reasonable amazement at their omission. Though they know that the hereditary principle predated agriculture, Mr. Flannery and Miss Marcus cannot quite shed the Rousseauian, the Rousseauian, I don't know how to say it as an adjective, the Rousseauian. <laughs> Rousseauian illusion that it started with sedentary life. Therefore, they depict the world without inherited power until the 15,000 BC, while ignoring one of the most important archaeological sites for their purpose. For dug into the permafrost beneath the Paleolithic settlement that Sungir was the grave of a middle-aged man buried, as Fernandez Ernesto observes, with stunning signs of honor, bracelets of polished, uh, polished mammary ivory, a diadem or cap of fox's teeth, nearly 3,000, 3,000 laboriously carved or polished ivory beads. A few feet away, in an identical grave, lay two children, about 10 or 13 years respectively, adorned with comparable grave gifts, including, in the case of the elder, some 5,000 beads as fine as the adults, although slightly smaller, and a massive lance carved from ivory. So here we are immediately contradicting the idea that there was, there's, there's no material abundance, right? And the idea that they didn't even, they couldn't have anything to spare, which sits at the uh, core of, which sits at the core of the beginning of most of the analyses and the narratives. Bouncing off of that as well, I, I think you're exactly right that what they are doing here is, you know, using the empirical archaeological record to, to show, to, to debunk that core pillar of the, the myth that, you know, these societies were, uh, had no material possessions, were constantly on the move, right? Constantly searching for new sources of food, new, new, new animals to hunt. Um, and, you know, could not accumulate anything like what we would see as abundance, let alone riches, uh, without, you know, coming to a form of primitive capitalism, right? In terms of private property, uh, in terms of creating cities and, and, dom and relationships of domination, you know, uh, or, you know, complex bureaucracies, all of that kind of stuff. You know, they, they are, uh, while also pinpointing that a lot of these uh, people that perpetuate this myth studiously ignore this contradiction, right? Studiously yeah. ignore the evidence that contradicts their fairy tale. And as they go on to say, right, like this, you know, th this one instance of a, of a, of a rich burial site, you know, in, 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 you know, east of modern day Moscow, uh, is not the only, right, while such, as they say, such findings appear to have no significant place in any of the books so far considered, downplaying them or reducing them to mere footnotes might be more easy to forgive were Sungir an isolated find. It is not. You know, and then they go on to talk about how comparably rich burials um, are have been, you know, found all over the place, right? All over Western Eurasia, you can find these burials, you know, what have been called these like Neolithic princes, right? Uh, of, of people, right, you know, buried, um, as they say, quote, the 16,000 year old lady of Saint Germain La Riviere, uh, bedecked with ornaments made on the teeth of young stags hunted 300 kilometers away in the Spanish Basque country and the burials of the Ligurian coast as ancient as Sungir, uh, including Il Principe, uh, a young man whose regalia included a scepter of exotic flint, 
elk antler batons and an ornate headdress of perforated shells and deer teeth. Such findings pose stimulating challenges of interpretation. You know, so on one hand, that 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 debunks this myth of uh, uh, that uh, that there was no abundance, right? No, we have all these burial sites showing uh, riches, decadent, uh, you know, uh, decadent abundance that we would think of now, and, and so that opens a question. As they say, what was the status of such individuals in life, right? Do were were is this evidence that actually there were, you know? Uh, kingdoms and principalities and empires uh, at this time that we just for some reason didn't know about uh, for all you know for all this time or for some reason ignored you know these these sprawling empires of the Neolithic age or or is it something else right or are these people representative of something else right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it off. Uh, there, there's still so much more to get into with this Graber and Wingrow piece. There, there's no way we can pack it all into one episode. So we are going to to pull an old school TMK move and cut the episode in half. Uh, and you can and and you know you can find us and find the other half of our our discussion about Wingrow and Graber about what we can learn from the the seasonal rhythms and social fluidity of these uh, these older civilizations, older societies, um, and many societies that actually not that long ago. Uh, just just a little you know hint there that you know, so so much of what we think of as historical is actually very recent in in terms of uh, the present. So at any rate, find us at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills for that for the second half of this discussion um, for a whole backlog of other episodes and you know, another episode every week after that. It's a deal at any price. <laughs> so until then, uh, we will see you on the Patreon feed later. Adios.
Thank you.